the wine catch. Okay. And uh, I was told to go up to see the old man. The old man is an acronym for the SEAL, commanding officer. Just Alright, there we go. I feel comfortable. Should I go? Yeah. Okay. I went up to see the old man, Major Sears, and he said, if you got your pinks and greens, that's your formal uniform. You know where they're so hot. And I said, I guess they're probably mildewed. They're in the footlocker up in the fashion. He said, you've got an assignment. He said, I don't know how long it'll last. I want you to get your pinks and greens cleaned up. And he said, your orders are being cut now. You will go to Darjeeling and report to Lord Louis Moffat, who was then, had been just appointed by Churchill as the new commander-in-chief of all of Asia. That's the same post that MacArthur had in the Pacific and Eisenhower had in Europe. You know, we were so benevolent, we were giving the Brits one command. But you had to because they'd been in Asia so long, we were neophytes over there. And see, I said, well, what am I supposed to do, Chief? And he said, uh, whatever uh, uh, the Allied commander wants you to do, he said, that's what you do. And he said, I hear he's a pretty good sword. I've never met him. But he said, uh, uh, he said, Ops is going to set up somebody to fly you down to Calcutta. He said, you're going to have to take one of those goddamn trains going up to Darjeeling. And uh, or they, they throw soot like mad, you know. Anyhow, what, what rank were you in? I was a lieutenant. Second, first lieutenant? Uh, no, I'm thinking. No, yeah, I was first lieutenant. Now, what plane, what, would you have had a crew or would you just be a... No, I would get the crew. I found out subsequently that Hap Arnold, who was a five-star general for the Army Air Corps, had given a C-47 and a B-25 to Lord Mountbatten. She didn't have all that red tape and the things were done on a handshake good, strong men. And uh, anyhow, the airplane was strained to the RAF, RAF crew, Royal Air Force crew, that was assigned to Mountbatten. And uh, they also were not familiar with all these mountains and passes. They're immense. And I had a thousand hours already flying in all this stuff. I knew every pass. When a fighter jumped me in a transport, I knew how to get away from him. Were you glad to go to this assignment? Oh, sure. It was something new and different. Why do you think they picked you? Huh? Why do you think they picked you? I don't know. I guess because I had a lot of time. I had a lot of combat time. Uh, so, and then occasionally, too, we went TDY, it was temporary duty, to a fighter unit. When you were flying this transport, uh, were you ever shot at? Yeah. Oh yeah, we were shot at several times. Flying over, over the hill? Yeah. Oh, hundreds of airplanes were shot down by the Japanese arrow. Well, you didn't mention it, that's why. Well, there's so much you can't remember. You can't cover everything. Yeah, one day uh, we did... Uh, we got jumped by zero, shot the hell out of the airplane. 
fact, uh, one crew member was hit. He didn't die, though. Uh, was this Japanese a good plane? Oh, yeah. Made by Mitsubishi. Now you buy the television set. Okay, let's, let's not get on that. <laughs> well, you're taking me off of it. You're right. I, All I right, well, uh, back to Lord Mombat. So I went took a train. They flew me down to Calcutta. I went to the railroad station, just like, uh, oh, Rudyard Kipling would do. <laughs> the Brits in their shorts, you know, and their pistol over here, and their Sam Brown. I think I got to know a lot of them. I got, with my, my B4 bag, I got on a train, and I rode that damn thing all the way up, choking half to death from the smoke coming back from the engine. And you know, they got these cars, you go in the side. And I finally got to the foothills of Darjeeling. Well, that's right near Mount Everest. Darjeeling is much, I guess it's probably 11, 12,000 feet high. And uh, then you take, at the city at the foot there, foothill, you get a cab and you go up the mountain trails in a cab. And it's quite an uh, adventuresome ride. But I finally got up there and I reported into uh, Lord Mountbatten's headquarters. At that time, his headquarters were in Darjeeling, which is strictly British. Darjeeling known for tea. Tea plantations all over the place. I reported in this great big barn building, more like a palace, and uh, I remember uh, a lieutenant took me to uh, see General Bo Humphrey. That was the aide to Mombat. He was a brigadier. And they called him Brigadier Bo Humphrey. I don't forget that. That's quite a British name, but I like it. He was in charge of Britain at the time they expected Hitler to come across, in charge of the Home Guard, where they gathered up shotguns and rifles and old pistols, anything that would shoot. And they booby-trapped the beaches and everything. They thought Hitler was going to come across, and they were going to fight to the last man. Brits have a lot of, uh, they did then, they had a lot of guts. Great people. In fact, I think our whole country, our whole legal system, that's why I like the, it's predicated on them. They've lived experiences for over a thousand years, you know. Anyhow, Bo Humphrey met me, offered me tea, and uh, then he said, well, he said, I know you have to report, your artists are to report to uh, the Lord. He kicked up called the Lord Louis, and I said, yes, sir, and he said, uh, you need to get the phone? Uh, oh, I better. play, okay. Okay, Bo Humphrey, uh, Brigadier Bo Humphrey said, he won't have an audience with uh, Lord Louis today because he's pretty busy. I think he was in a meeting with uh, uh, Joe Stillwell and Claire Chennault which are all part of his theater operation. He's a 14th Air Force, 10th Air Force. And uh, so uh, Meryl's Mirage, they're all under Mountbatten, because that's all in Asia. See? That's how theater well, operates. Well, and, and Meryl's Mirage was on the ground, and Chenault was in the air. Right. It's all, everything's jurisdictional. Who has what? I mean, what does he control? And what are the 
command and communication lines, you always hear the words, you fight a war, the best thing you got is command and control. Commands communication. You got to know what the enemy is doing and how you counter it. And time's of the essence, always is. And how fast can you get a shift? You might you might put two divisions of troops on a uh, push one way, and all of a sudden you say, "Gee, they're going to be suckered into a pincer movement or something." You got to stop it. Communication's been ever since the use of the mirror and the semaphore and the flags. You've got to communicate, command and control. And you've got to have a command structure that starts with the Commander-in-Chief, the President of the United States, and the Joint Chiefs of Staff on down. It, it's axiomatic. That's the way it works. Your outside is office and you can't see you today. Huh? Your outside man's office and he can't see you today. He's busy. Yeah, he's busy. So he said it'd be a day or two. Well, I think it was the third day in the morning. I went over there, I was just sitting reading British magazines, and then uh, uh, finally Bo Humphrey, I forget who the woman WAP uh, was, she said, uh, General Bo Humphrey wants to see you. So I went from her office into his office, and of course you go from his office to the live monitor. He sort of screams, nobody gets to Lord Mountbatten without him. And I went in, and he said, he said, Bob, he said, sorry to make you wait so long. He said, but we're going to have some activity now. I remember him saying that. Lord Mountbatten's in there, he says, you're going to love him. The old man's great and everything. He said, and he's seeing now. He said, I'll take you in. So he took me in. They're very courteous. You know, one thing about the British, they have great manners. Took me in, introduced me, made me feel right at home, brought tea in, and sat down. And Lord Mountbatten wanted to know how much fine time I had, where I was from. I told him, you probably never heard of St. Louis, Missouri. Oh, yeah, I've heard of St. Louis, Missouri. And uh, we struck it up. And I guess that went on for about 30 minutes. And he was a pretty busy man, so I had to leave. He said, well, he said, I wish you'd prepare the airplane. He said, uh, we're going to be leaving here. And I moved my headquarters for temporarily, I think he said, to Calcutta. But he said, we'll be moving around quite a bit in Burma and Upper Sam, India, and in Western India, all the way over to Karachi, in New Delhi, in Bombay, in Calcutta. And uh, he said, also, General Bull Humphrey will take you down. You're going to meet my crew that you're going to train. So you get back to fighting these bastards. He called them bastards. He says, if we get back to fighting those bastards, he said, uh, we won't keep you any, any longer than necessary. Because you know? I was loaned to them for that purpose, explicit purpose. Just to fly around. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so I went down and uh, these uh, airplanes, I was familiar with them. Uh, it's easy to teach a, particularly an English-speaking pilot, how to fly a machine. Brits are great pilots, anyhow. And uh, so we uh, went down. We shot some landings in the Goonie and the B-25. And uh, oh, the biggest thing they didn't know the terrain. I spent hours with them. 
So they chose you because you had more experience than their pilots, and they wanted something yeah. like that. To the trial and error method I'd been through. Trial and error with the terrain and the yeah, with the terrain. And you were going to end up flying one of their planes. You'd be it saved your life because you knew things the other guy didn't know. It's not just a question of being known. What the hell's down there? What can I do? Uh, we've had one of the guys in our squad was so good he ran a Jap Zero into my mom because he could fly. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And you do. You learn these techniques and weather. You learn how to use weather to your advantage. Were the Japanese good pilots? No, not that good. Not as good as their planes. No, their planes were superb. But they weren't as good as their planes. You take the Bettys and the the, the Haps, Zeeks, the Zeros. Uh, well, great manufacturers. Uh, okay, so you you were now getting familiar with their planes. Well, the uh, I, when I was with Loud Mob Band, we never hit. Because uh, every time I flew anywhere. Now after that we start going on flights, always to meetings. Meetings in Burma, at uh, meetings up at Chawa, at Dinjan, at Lido, Upper Sam, and also at Yitkinyana in Burma, which is that's the opium center of the world. You know the the triangle. And uh, did you did you have a co-pilot, or did he just sit up there with you? Well, he, uh, I always had the guys, the, the uh, captain of the Royal Air Force, that was going to be the, the head man of the flight contingency. He flew always as co pilot. Then finally he was in the left seat and I was in the right seat. So you could get trained? Yeah. And then you could go back. And that went on for a few weeks. And then, then they learned enough where I could take. And they got me back to Calcutta, and they sent an airplane down for me and went back to the same old, same old, they were doing the same old thing. But it was great. I showed you a letter from, uh, my first letter from him. Did your impression of him change from the beginning of knowing him through the, oh, yeah. the weeks? How many weeks was it? Two or three weeks? I'd say about two or three. Is it, did it change? Probably three. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I got to know them better because we spent time together. You get to know a person better. More time we spent with them. At first, it was just a, a very formal meeting, although he was very gracious. But then he would come up to the cockpit. Sometimes he'd move the RF pile out there and he'd sit there and chat with me. I remember once he, uh, we were going to a meeting. I better tell you about this. Uh, we had just taken Mayitkanina, which is an opium center, away from the Japanese. We killed thousands of Japanese here. And Miro's Marauders spearheaded that thing. And I remember seeing one of them, he wanted a wristwatch off with that Jap was lying there. And he just took his vein and cut his wrist off and took the watch, wiped the blood off and put it in his pocket. And I got to meet Doc Seagraves. He was a famous surgeon. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. Uh, he was there with Wingate's troops. What's his first name? Mm -hmm. Offhand. Was that the Burma surgeon? Burma surgeon, yeah. Yeah, that's him. 
You're pretty knowledgeable. Well, uh, the uh, we finally made a big bomber and fire base out of it. As you move forward, you bring your airplanes up. It's like a firehouse. You get them closer to where the action is. So you don't have to fly so long to get to where you can drop your bombs and kill someone. And uh, so uh, that went on. Mm. Anyhow, Lieberman, uh, his first flight, the second flight, I guess it was, he briefed me. He said, we're going to have a uh, pretty good sized cover everywhere we want to get. P-51 fighters covering us in case Jap drills came to protect that airplane because it's a Supreme Allied Commander. They give a damn about me, but they did about him. And uh, uh, this time we were going out to the Yitkin unit for a strategy. So you had American ships, American planes. Guarding his airplane. Guarding his airplane. Yeah. Why was that? Well, because the British didn't have too much of an aerial presence in that area. Okay, that's enough. Okay. That answers the question. Yes. Okay. So, Sergeant Mopatton told me, he said, we were going uh, to meet us from Nina, our mission off, and he said, we got a big meeting up there, it's going to be about three days. And he said, uh, <clears throat> he came up and talked to me several times, but I'd been briefed, and uh, not to leave the uh, the fighter and fly at a certain altitude where they could crisscross above me and on the side of me. The boxes, so nothing get through to us. Since we were flying a transport plane, no guns. <clears throat> and uh, so anyhow, we got to, we were up about, oh, I guess 15,000. And we started in the foothills of the Himalayas, and you could see the Leo Road, a brown dirt see it winding through the hill. And he he tapped me on his shoulder and he says, Bob, I'd like to go down and take a look at that. And I said, sir, I can't do that. He said, why not? <laughs> He's a big boy. I said, I've been uh, briefed to stay at this altitude. I said, do our fighters can cover this at all? Piece of cake. Now, we've got it made. We're only about 100, 150 miles from uh, Mission Off. And uh, he said, I want to see that. And he was rather adamant about it. So I said, yes, sir, pull the power back. And we went down. And I buzzed, I guess, for oh, 75 to 100 miles. GIs were waving. We were so close. Within feet, you know, I'd go up the road. And he got the biggest kick out of it. When we got to Mission All landed, the fighters lost us. See? They can't follow you when you're down low. It camouflages. They can't see you. So I was told I was under house arrest. You go to my tent, and Arlie took me to my tent at Mission on, and that was General Shatemeyer of 10th Air Force, because the colonel in charge of the fighters said I had uh, broke from the outfit I was assigned and went down and did it. So, what the hell am I going to do? I went over and sat in a tent to read some more magazines. <clears throat> Anyhow, uh, a 
couple hours later, Roy Mopad comes in and he says, well, he says, I heard about the misunderstanding. He said, Bob, it's, it's all taken care of. Because I had a report to Stratemeyer, and he told me he was going to court martial me. That would have been egg on his face if something had happened to Roy Mopad. And I, yeah, yeah, when you serve several masters, sometimes yeah. it gets pretty tough. So was you, did you know that Mountbatten would clear you? No, I didn't, I didn't know that. I, I couldn't be so presumptuous as to go get a hold of him and ask him to do it. You don't challenge people of that, that level, you don't challenge their words. But did you feel in your heart that he was going to come? I thought he would. Yeah, I did. I had a gut feeling. Were you worried? Yeah, I was a little bit worried, you bet. Because that's a young punk, you know. And, uh, you had no choice in the way, didn't you? No. Oh, I could have refused to do it, but then I'd made an enemy of him. Uh, I, I'd maybe, maybe not. He would have understood, maybe. Anyhow, then he came back and he said, I want you to be at the banquet tonight. <clears throat> and we went. There was a table looked like this. It was a long tent, and they had a table like this. I was drawing. We saw a piece of paper. And uh, at this table was Claire Chenault, Jules Stillwell, Mount uh, Batten sat there. Um, General Pick, who was an Army engineer who built the Lido Road. Merrill's Marauder, General Merrill was there. General Stadamire, uh, Dr. Seagraves was there. Mao Tse Tung was there. Mao Tse Tung, Chiang Kai-shek. And, and I remember Mao Tse Tung, I think, was on this side of the table, and they put Shank I shake way down here because a mossy took still had the bandoliers around full of bullets, big fur cap, and two the two bodyguards fighting them all the time. I'll tell you, these are great characters. And I was down the end with the peasants, but I got to see all this, you know. And being a young punk, oh, mm, uh. I wasn't completely cosmopolitan. I was just getting uh, involved. I, even then, I recognized the importance of that. You know, these were some greats. The importance of what? Of uh, people like uh, Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong. Mao Zedong, subsequent that hell, what we see in China today—that's his doing. He chased this guy out of China over to Formosa. You know the whole history. So I actually sat at the same dinner dinner table with him. Is it like a dream? Hmm? I said, is it like a dream now, so many years later? You well, I don't it. think about it very often, except it's a rare occasion when, when I go back. I haven't done this. I don't think, I don't think I've ever done this. It's amazing how many things you can, you can uh, dredge up, you know. And is this okay for you? Oh, sure. Uh, never bothered me. And in fact, even when we killed Jackson, never bothered me. I used to delight in. Uh, 
But she wasn't the mindset you've got today. It would be horrible to think that way. Why would it be horrible today? Why? Mm -hmm. No. Because you're in a war? No, the Moors have changed. And uh, our soft society, we're given the euphemisms on everything. Uh, certain things, even right now you're, you're learning a lot, you're hearing a lot about academic freedom in university. If you want to say nigger, you're being less than uh, an academician. If you're arguing a point, as the great, great, Greek philosophers, Plato, Aristotle, they did. If the discussion centers around race and uh, you have to guard your speech, uh, you can't say what is a lexicon, and you have to use euphemisms all the time. You're being disingenuous, is what I'm saying. Uh, less than honest. You're a pseudo-intellect. And which you are, you know, and that's a big thing. Is you're starting to see newspapers on the campuses now, even taking what uh, uh, the debate and taking ads and saying the Holocaust never happened. The issue is not whether it happened or not. The issue is whether you can debate it. We have this thing called the First Amendment, this Constitution I was talking about. Anything goes, even if it's pornography. The Supreme Court is don't want to infringe on this freedom of speech idea. You know, it's a hard road to traverse. Do you think that some freedom of speech is dangerous? Freedom of speech? Some freedom of speech. Yeah, but who's going to select what that sum is? That's where you run into the problem. How did you feel about what happened at Washington under the Arab I thought they, they, they had the right solution. Put it on. And I, I often felt for the 4F individual, the guy, because it's human nature to want to be a part of your society, that whatever they're doing, you know. And I've had two cousins that did their damage again in the service they couldn't. Now to be uh, uh, promulgated into, oh, that of a leper, I would say, uh, an outcast. People like that were outcasts. I think you're starting to see some plays about that now. I started to see people who couldn't get in and they joined the Red Cross and were sent overseas doing that. Some did. Uh, some didn't have those skills. Red Cross, uh, I always said, look, I made a cup of coffee for them. I learned how to smoke because of the Red Cross. The beautiful gal gave me a pack of cigarettes. I didn't smoke, you know. And I started to be a smoker after that. Was this at the USOs? Well, we had the USO shows always, wherever I was, come through Bob Hope, uh, Les Brown, and I even met, uh, <coughs> uh, well, I might as well tell you, this won't take long. I don't want to waste you. I'm going to get on the things that you want. But Doris Day, I dated her for a while. Uh, <laughs> 
Well, yeah, this would be a little bit embarrassing. Broadway was a, a military operation from India into Burma. And I don't know if you've ever heard did of Flip. Did you meet Roosevelt too? No, I never met. Flip Cochran. Did you ever hear him? Yeah. Oh, did you? Yeah. Okay, Flip was in charge of Operation Broadway, which was a glider tow, and I towed two gliders into Burma, where we, we cut off the Japs, or they did. Had a lot of Brits involved, Wingate's troops, along with Flip Cochran, had charge of the, uh, the air operation. And uh, one thing that was prevalent over there was dysentery. You had a watch. I love tomatoes. I always have. And I'd been over in China, and I, we were warned. The doc said, don't you ever eat anything raw. And I love raw tomatoes. I always have some kids. And this one looked so clean. The president, I washed it good. But it got the GI, dysentery. And on, on, on that mission, <clears throat> uh, nature called, and I had to go. The standard latrine was a hole that was dug in the ground, probably about four feet deep. And the carpenters would build these row of seats, usually eight holders or ten holders, and then they built a structure on the outside. They could move it after so much defecation and that was in there. But they put lime in there and cover it up and dig a new hole. And it was hygienic because the doc supervised all you had to do flight service for, and you had uh, uh, <coughs> what do you call me? Uh, military. Every unit in the military has always had uh, an animal doctor, a veterinarian. That's still that's carried back to the Civil War days, and even before that. So before we had been briefed, and I still had about 15 minutes before I had to get back to my crew and in the airplane, because it was startup start up time for engines and everything. When the very pistol was shot and the, uh, the red ball went up and then the yellow ball and then the green one. <coughs> and then you take off and hook up of gliders and all that. That's a big operation. So I thought, I would have caught this is going to be about four or five hours in the damn cockpit of that airplane. So I rush in this place, and there's one guy in there sitting. It was Coogan. Johnny Coogan? Jackie Coogan? Jackie Coogan. Yeah. I became close friends with him. I, I walked in, and, uh, and uh, anyhow, about two seats away, but I sat down, he said, he said, my name's Johnny. And he stuck, put his hand over, and I shook his hand. I said, you're Coogan, aren't you? I recognize him. He said, yeah. And he talked about Betty Grable. That was his first flight. And talked about a few other things. Finally, he, had, he was flying one of the gliders. He was a glider pilot. And uh, we talked maybe about 10 minutes. No friendship or anything. And that was it. And I didn't see him again. When I come back to the States, and I was assigned to a glider snatch, pickup, and all night and day operation, with the infantry and the officers club. I'm in there and, and I hear somebody, Duke, you son of a bitch. And I turned around, it was Coogan. Well, because I I had a lot of time, I respected. And he was a glider pilot. 
every weekend we started going from Indianapolis, Stouts Field, out, taking a, an airplane, going out to Los Angeles. And I got to meet Burgess Meredith and his wife, Paulette Goddard, uh, Harry James. And one night he introduced me to the, uh, the one I saw anybody. Doris Day. You can say it again. <laughs> Doris Day. And uh, that went on, I guess, for about, about three months. Everything was, was sharp-lived. You know, you did things. You met people. You, you took them for face value, and you moved on to other things. It was constant moving. Are, are you well, physically well now? I think so. Okay. No, I meant, you know, you never had, did you have any injuries? No. No war injuries. Did you ever, somebody asked you a question, did you ever feel, <clears throat> well, how did you feel, let me ask you it this way, how did you feel coming back that you had no injuries and other people? Felt a little guilty about that. I did. Particularly whenever I went to a, vet, a veteran's hospital. And particularly if I saw a paraplegic or somebody like that. Uh, you, there's the old saying, there but for the grace of God go I. You know, it, it's, it's fortuitous. You don't know. Yeah. You don't. Why do you suppose people do feel guilty instead of, you could have said, uh, lucky, but guilty is probably a more honest answer. Well, I don't know. I don't know how that fits into the scheme of things. Well, I have no idea. I've, I've interviewed, I've not asked this question, but I, I feel comfortable asking you. And I, two weeks ago, I was not sure I was wanting to ask anybody that question. But That's I, a fair question. Well, depending on who you feel but comfortable you know, enough we're not all so analytical that we figure out why or why not we do something or do not do something. I feel I'm not a, I, I think I'm a pretty analytical person. I analyze a lot of things. That's why probably I felt I could ask you. But uh, I never really thought the only answer, plausible answer I can give is a, it's a guilt feeling that uh, why should fate Leave me be the way I am, and take that poor bastard's legs off, or, or uh, lose an arm, or, or uh, an eye, or just hearing it all. Bob, where where will you be buried? What? Where will you be buried? Probably JB. I don't know. Jefferson. <coughs> why would why would you pick that? Well, I don't know. I I have a special place in my heart for military people. This thing like this, this confab that's going on, this controversy about uh, Clinton. Uh, I don't like this son of a bitch. I never will because I think he's a dodger. And therefore, his character has a flaw. In it. I think he'd make a poor president. How do you feel about Quail? Same way. Same way as I feel about Gepard. Gepard came in the guard, same thing as Quail. Same way I feel about Bond. 
serve. Look at his age. What the hell was he doing? Same way with Danford. You know, we covered that. I wrote a paper in the War College about what's going to happen when we don't have any wars for a while to our leadership in our Congress and the executive branch, men who've never faced uh, the greatest test of all. And you're running out of people like that. Now, uh, <coughs> you take uh, Dole. I have great admiration for that man. And anyway? In the U.S. Senate. Yeah, but how about anyway? Anyway, I have great admiration for him. Uh, this uh, presidential candidate, Kerry, I have great admiration for him. The Medal of Honor with him. That, that stacks high in my system of, uh, of what is priorities, yeah. What kind of things have I missed or not touched on um, that you might want to talk about? Well, think in terms of somebody listening to this in 25 years about the Second World War. Well, the next thing it came was the Korean War. How did you feel about that? I mean, you just fought the war and the well, I would say I was in the reserves going to school at Washington University. On the GI Bill. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and we are going over to Scott flying fighters, whatever they had, we'd fly because we love to fly. We didn't get paid for it then. But uh, in, I left on May 1st of 1951 for Spokane, Washington. Fairchild Air Force Base. They had a division in SAC there. You talking about the the, uh, the uh, Korean War? Korean War. Um, we'll talk about that after it's off because we're really into this. This is just the Second World War for this case. But did, was there any kind of a letdown when you came home? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, you, your batteries have been charged up for so long. And to come back to something so mundane and <clears throat> routine, and uh, it's a hard transition to make. Yeah. Naturally, uh, you're used to a, a disciplined life, uh, adventuresome life, taking a lot of chances. And now you go to bed, and uh, you, you got all the, the the advantages of heat and indoor tawdry and uh, obeying facilities. Hell, there were times out in the desert when I had to go on TDY there. Well, you couldn't take a bath but once every two weeks. There's scarcity of water. There's more important to have it for drinking than to bathe. Did you ever have any nightmares? Did you have flashbacks that you'd be driving or somewhere and or, or... Never that, think about it. That you right now, I'm surprised I can recall these things as long as I am. Because I don't, I haven't rehearsed this, I don't think about it. I think I can articulate anything that, that happened, but... Uh, you did very well. But no, I don't have flashbacks. And I think a lot of this is mythical. Uh, you know, it always amazed me, the, with shrinks. I never did think much of shrinks. 
But in World War One, they called it shell shock. And in World War Two, it was a battle fatigue. Even Patton didn't believe in it either. And uh, in World War, I mean, since that time, it's been a post-traumatic syndrome, you know, whatever the hell that means. But I suppose if something is supposed to be done in the mind that you had horrible experiences. Well, when it comes to horrible experiences, you were talking about uh, uh, the macabre, eh? the, the death. You know, I know that weighs heavy on, on, nobody wants to die, I love living. But, uh, I don't know, I don't know. Uh, I know in the service, you do see death, and you do get a different perspective. You, uh, but you, you handle it differently, you accept it. I think that's what you learn how to accept things. I never thought about that before. But whatever comes, you take and accept it. I had a brother died from cancer uh, two years ago. And he knew he was dying. Uh, and you could call brave or anything. And he was involved very much in World War II in the Navy. But. Uh, I think you go through various stages, and he did. And he said, "Well, I'm, I'm ready if he's a religious person, uh, not agnostic or, or atheist." Then ready to meet my maker, uh, as he was. He was a religious man. Uh, he accepted the fact he was going to die. He did die. And I think he probably learned that in the service. Just like the old triple A creed, you know, Alcoholics Anonymous. I've never been there, but I know people who have say the old adage that uh, give me the courage to change those things I can't, accept those things I can't, and the wisdom to know the difference. And I, I think that's what life's all about. But I think it's emphasized more if you had experiences in the military. Did you feel that? When you came back, you, you, you have talked about yourself before not getting much of a chance or uh, a certain element or economic bracket line. And you went to Washington on the GI Bill and you became a lawyer. Yeah. Okay. Did, did you feel that, that the, um, it was like a, a new middle class? Or did you feel different about yourself? Or? I think that goes back to what you are. When I grew up, um, I don't know anything about uh, be about your background, but when I grew up, our economic strata was such. We never anticipated, never, never had great expectations. Up until that war broke out, I knew in my own heart, you're going to be a truck driver or a millwright or a machinist uh, or a bricklayer or a carpenter, you know, 
you're never going to go to college because out of all that hunter's relation between here and Belleville and Jerseyville and uh, Alton, places like that, nobody had ever gone to college. And so you're, you didn't have rising expectations. Today, everybody's got to have a college degree. Up until I was 21, I felt I was most fortunate to be given a chance to go fly an airplane. And I've maintained that. These other things are just something that just happened. Uh, I can deal with people. I've, I've been in the old office many a time. Uh, I've uh, known governors. Back to work for one, he's going to go out all the time. Uh, and people of certain uh, repute, they're supposed to be way up there, they don't impress me anymore. Danforth, old man Danforth was a good friend of mine. He didn't like his son Jack Danforth. He thought he was a wimp. I think he's a wimp. No guts. He used to say he's got no guts. Uh, I, I don't feel uncomfortable now around intellects. I think I can hold my own with anybody on world affairs or anything else. Economics, uh, I think it could be good in anything I want to do. I could be a good businessman. I've never particularly liked the law. Uh, Did you practice it at all? Yeah. For how long? But, uh, Eight years. Uh, why did you choose that? I didn't choose it. It was something to do. You know, anybody can do these things. Then what did you do? Uh, I was the Adjutant General. I had one case. I had a, a $2 million lawsuit down here in the federal court. And other lawyers had to take it over. Judge Mangle told me, he said, you know, this case involved an injured pilot, an aviation case. And he said, uh, <coughs> you're going to be a part of uh, what had been a defendant, now you're going to be that defendant, one of them. And I want your uh, memorandum of uh, withdrawing from this case, because you've got a conflict of interest, which I did have. Uh, The law, to me, like everything else, it's an institution. I, I like the law. I like the common law. I like the history of law in England, which I'm very familiar with. All the type courts and their bench and bar uh, and their ends. Uh, I just don't like the people who are lawyers in our present-day society. I think we had some good lawyers 30, before 30 years ago. I think we got a bunch of bums now. What did you do after you stopped being a lawyer to make a living? Uh, when I went up and became the adjutant general, I never did go back to law practice. All right, we're going to wind down. Do you have anything to say for those people who might be listening to your tape? And no, I don't really have anything to say. Uh, 
interested in geography I suppose being in the service. I've been to every country in the world. I've been to the South Pole, been to the North Pole. And how many people can say that? Been to every country in Africa, Middle East, Far East. Been to Japan I guess at least fifty times. Well, I hope this has been an okay experience and thank you for all that you did during the war. I appreciate that. Oh if you're thinking me, it's on the behalf of how many people. I can't thank them all, so I'll just thank you. Okay. <laughs>